This morning, I'm continuing to go through the book of Philippians. Uh, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi that he started. And he's writing this from a Roman prison where he's been unjustly imprisoned. And he's writing to encourage them that even though he's in prison, that God's work is continuing, carrying on. There's nothing that can stop that. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16 this morning. It's a longer passage that we're going to take at least two weeks to look at because there's a lot in here. Um, but we're going to read the whole passage this morning and then we'll read it again next week. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this means. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to become more like you as we leave this place, to know you more, to love you more, to reflect you more to this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, there's a lot I could talk about in this passage, and I'm going to at least break it down over two weeks. Next week, we're going to look at the second half of the passage where he talks about his goals and his motivation, his desire to know Christ and to press on. But I want to focus this morning on verses 2 through 9, especially the part where he talks about the word righteousness. It's a very biblical, theological, Christian kind of word, righteousness. And he talks about the difference between trying to have a righteousness based on his own Efforts versus the righteousness that is given to him by God. And, and so I want to break that down and understand what that means. Righteousness is, a, again, it's a very theological, biblical word. Um, the easiest way to think about what it means is right relatedness to God. To be righteous is to be in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. That you're right in your relationship with God, that you are treating others rightly as well. Um, but specifically in a vertical way, it means that you're right with God. So to be righteous is to be right with God. 
And he's saying there's two ways people are talking about being right with God. It's either through our own efforts or it's through the righteousness given to us by God. And so we're going to break that down this morning. And there's three movements to his argument in this passage that I want to uh, walk us through. He begins by focusing on this, basically saying, reject anyone who adds to justification by faith in Jesus. And again, the word justification, it's, it's a legal term that means to be declared not guilty. So justification is the, the way that a holy and perfect God calls us not guilty, sees us as perfect without sin, even though we know that we've sinned. He says, reject anyone, basically, who's trying to add to justification by faith in Jesus. He begins with these strong words. He says this, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who is he referring to here? Not literal dogs, but he's looking out for people. He says, watch out for these people who he calls dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to a specific group of people that are known as the Judaizers. It shows up in a lot of Paul's letters. It's a group that would basically kind of follow, follow Paul around. Paul would go around preaching that salvation is by faith in Jesus, that we're right with God because Jesus died for our sins. And then this group would follow him saying, yeah, Paul, what he's teaching is wrong. You don't just have to believe in Jesus. You also need to be a Jew because Jesus was a Jew And this is all comes from Judaism. So you also need men. You need to be circumcised because that's a sign of the covenant with God. You need to follow the dietary kosher laws. You need to follow the Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament. If you're going to be a Christian, you not only need to believe in Jesus, you also need to follow all these Old Testament laws. They're known as the Judaizers. And Paul, in no uncertain terms, tells them, the Philippians, to watch out for these people. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh. Now, dogs in those days was a reference to Gentiles, those who were outside of the covenant between God and, and his people in Israel. And he's saying that these people who think they're in God's covenant are actually the dogs. They're the ones on the outside. They're the evildoers. They're the mutilators of the flesh. In other, in other words, not just, you know, circumcision was the sign of the covenant between the men at that time and God. He's saying they're not... They're, they're mutilators of the flesh. They're not doing something that's a holy, sacred ritual here. They're just mutilating the flesh. It has no significance. It has no spiritual value. Watch out for these people who are adding to salvation by grace and, and faith in Jesus, adding to justification by faith. We read about the Judaizers in Acts 15. It said, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So there's an example right there. Following those who are preaching the gospel of salvation by grace and saying, no, 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 no. It's not just believe in Jesus. You also need to follow the laws of Moses. There's a couple other passages in the Bible where Paul strongly argues against them. Galatians chapter 5. He says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now, he's not talking from a health perspective here. He's saying, if you are doing this because you think this makes you right with God, congratulations. You have just put yourself under the entire Old Testament law, the entire Old Covenant. If you're following his argument here, he's saying, if you think that it's not just faith in Jesus that saves you, but you also need to be circumcised again and go under the Old Testament law, then you got to obey all of it. You're putting yourself back under the old 
covenant, the Old Testament. He says in verse 3, again, of Philippians 3, it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, it's not a ritual that makes you right with God. That God has done something spiritually to make us right with him through Jesus. It is we who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus. We don't put any confidence in the flesh, in what we do in our bodies. That's not what makes us right with God. Romans 2 is another place where he brings this up. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as, those, as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is one, only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. I hope you're following his train of thought here. Again, he's arguing against the idea that rituals make you right with God and that this old covenant is going to make you right with God. He's saying, no, it's, it's not about that. It's about the heart. It's about something God has done in our hearts by Jesus. That's what makes us right with God. So just because someone calls themselves a Jew does not make themselves right with God. Just because a Jewish man is circumcised did not make him right with God. It's about more than that. It's about salvation by grace, justification by faith. Again, go back to Galatians 1 where he says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So again, Paul is writing to the Galatians who have fallen under the spell of these Judaizers, and he's saying, you are leaving the gospel. You're leaving the good news. And you're turning to something that's not even a gospel. You're going back to the old covenant, and that's wrong. So again, there are still people today there are still teachers today, there are still churches today that you might enter or you might listen to who will try to teach you that salvation is about more than trusting in Jesus, that there's things you need to add to it in order to be a Christian, in order to be right with God. You may end up in a church that'll teach you that it's not just Jesus, but you also need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Now, I believe that the Bible does teach that speaking in tongues is a real thing, however, if you do not speak in tongues, I do not speak in tongues. If you do not speak in tongues, that does not mean that you are not saved. But you may end up in a church that will teach you that that is the evidence of salvation is that you speak in tongues. You may end up in a church that will teach you it's not just believing in Jesus, but you need to be baptized in our church in order to be saved. Or you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Again, I believe that baptism is important. That it is a sign of the covenant, but it doesn't save you. And it's faith in Jesus alone that saves you. You may end up in a church that might teach you that only those who read the King James Version are saved. And if you don't read the King James Version and you read other versions, you're not saved. You may wind up in a church that says only those in our denomination are saved. All who are outside our denomination, our way of thinking, are going to hell. 
Maybe it's Jesus plus the sacraments. It's not just faith in Jesus. You also need to go through these certain sacraments in order to be right with God. Or maybe it's any number of good works that you need to do in order to be right. Paul, here, calls those kind of people dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. He says, anyone who tries to add to salvation by grace, justification by faith in Jesus alone, it's not a gospel anymore. It's not good news anymore. It's, it's come down again to the works that you have to do in order to be saved. When the good news is that Jesus died for your sins, that he perfectly fulfilled the law for you. I'm stepping on points two and three. But point one is this. Reject anyone who adds to justification by faith in Jesus. Second line of argument here that Paul gives is this. Throw away your spiritual resume. So remember, he's saying, he says, I have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. I have reasons to put confidence in my own spiritual resume. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless. So he's giving his spiritual resume here. He's saying, my pedigree is impeccable. I'm not a convert to Judaism. I am part of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the only tribes that was faithful to the house of David. I was raised in the faith. I have remained in the faith. I have elevated by my education to the point of being a Pharisee. I am faultless. No one can look at me and accuse me of sin And I was so zealous for God that I was persecuting the Christians. Judaizers, you want to compare resumes? Good luck, he's saying. You want to give examples of why you should be accepted by God because of your spiritual resume? He says, I've got you all beat. But, he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Throw away your spiritual resume. This is Paul saying, I have a better resume than all of you, and it's garbage, it's trash. Must have been a British translator here because I feel like it's, it's, it's rubbish. That word rubbish is the Greek word skubalon, which is translated as garbage, rubbish. It's also translated as, it's the word for animal excrement. So either, either the translators were just being, you know, genteel and, and polite here, or maybe that's what he meant. But you get the point. He is saying that my spiritual resume here, all the things that made me what I thought right before God, it's a load of animal excrement. That's my spiritual resume. Whatever was once to my profit, I now consider loss. What I once looked to and said, this is the reason that I'm right with God, now he says, it's loss because I was trusting in something that was not going to make me right with God. It was going to make me 
not right with God if I trusted in those things. It's no longer to my profit. It's now loss. Those who are religious, in other words, think they're fine, think they're right with God because of their religiosity, because of their good works, because of what they've done. And he says, but those who know that they're sinners know they need a savior. You think of the parable that Jesus told of the publican and the, what was it, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And how the Pharisee was like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I, I fast and I tithe and all of that. And the, the tax collector won't even look up to heaven, but he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? The tax collector is the one who went home justified before God. Not the one who trusted in his spiritual resume. Just in case you think you've got a unbeatable spiritual resume, just in case there's anyone sitting out here who thinks they've got Paul beat, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like this. Ready? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anyone, anyone measure up to that? Does anyone in here measure up? Does anyone now feel like that you can stand before God with your spiritual resume and have him say like, you know, I'm blown away. I didn't think anyone could do it, but you, you did it. You measured up. Look at what Jesus is doing is here. He's saying for all of you who think that you can stand on your own good works before God what does he do? He keeps raising the bar and saying, you know, you're proud of yourself because you never murdered anyone. You never slept with someone who's not your wife. I tell you that if you've ever been angry with your brother, if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, it's the same in God's eyes. Unless you are perfect, unless your righteousness surpasses even the Pharisees and the, tax- and the scribes, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I mean The hope, I think, is that anyone listening to Jesus would be like, well, then who can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom of heaven? That brings us to point number three. Receive the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus. Thankfully, there is a way to be right with God that does not depend upon your spiritual resume. Again, this is what Paul said in Philippians, three, oh, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 3. He said this, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. That's what happened right there at the uh, Sermon on the Mount. As he gave the law, everyone listening hopefully became conscious of sin, realizing they fell short. But now a righteousness from God, a way to be right with God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I want you to read that one again while I take a sip of water. Do you see yourself in that passage? No one will be declared righteous by observing the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes every single one of you. Anyone who thinks that their spiritual resume is going to impress God, that you're going to be able to stand before him and say, God, I tithed, I served the poor, I went to church, If you think that that is going to make you right with God, then you are lost. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there is a way to be right with God that does not depend upon your spiritual resume. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the word of, you know, we're talking about righteousness being being rightly related to God. Reconciliation is making you rightly related to God. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, As as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you read verse 21, that last part in yellow with me? Here we go. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is a way to be right with God that does not depend upon your spiritual resume and what you have done or haven't done. That God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, the perfect one, to be sin for us. While he was on the cross, God treated him as if he was a sinner, even though he had no sin. He treated him as if he were the one who had done all the things that we have done. And he took all the punishment that we deserved. And he gave us his righteousness, his right relationship with God. So that when God the Father looks at you, he sees his son Jesus. He sees you through the lens of Jesus. Perfect, without sin. All your sin was put on Jesus on the cross and his righteousness was given to you. And so that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Am I making myself clear? Are you understanding this? That anyone who thinks that they can stand before God and say, I was a good person, is mistaken, is wrong, is is missing the point. That no one can measure up to God's holy standard, but that God has made a way to be right with him. And so, Paul, in writing to the Philippians here, This is why he's apoplectic about 
the fact that they are trusting in these Judaizers and what they're teaching. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're teaching you a gospel that is no gospel. It's not good news. They're telling you you need to go back under the law and the old covenant that no one can measure up to. Why would you want to go back under a law that you can't ever fulfill? In Hebrews 9, it says this, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. A covenant is like a contract, but with intimacy. You know, it's not just like a contract you make with your oil company, but it's an agreement with intimacy, like a marriage covenant, right? And there's a covenant, the old covenant that was made at Mount Sinai between Moses and the Israelites and God, where God said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. This is what it means. Follow these 10 commandments and these other 500 commandments. This is what it means to be the people of God. And if you follow them, all these blessings will happen. You know, you'll have great crops and and there'll be peace and all these things. But if you disobey, these curses will happen. And here in Hebrews, he's telling us that when Jesus died, he died for those curses. He died, took the curse upon himself that the people should have experienced. And he did away with that old covenant. It's It's obsolete. And so again, Paul is like, why would you want to go back under an old covenant that Jesus died to set you free from? There's a better covenant. There's a new covenant, which he talks about in Hebrews 8. The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he as a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. It's a lot of technical language about covenants in there, but I hope you're understanding what he's saying. That the old covenant that God set up at Mount Sinai is obsolete now. They didn't follow that. They couldn't obey it. Jesus died to take on the curse And did away with that. And now there's a new covenant. A new agreement. A new way of relating to God that doesn't depend upon observing all those laws. That he says, I will forgive their wickedness. Their sins are forgiven. That they will know me. That I will write my laws in their hearts. That I will, it's not about externally people teaching, but it's about God in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And so again, Paul is saying circumcision and going under the law it's not just not necessary, it's, it's wrong. It makes no sense. Why would you want to go back under this old law when there's a new covenant that you enter into with Jesus? I, w- I want to point out something that I found interesting in this passage for Paul. You know, often when we talk about salvation nowadays, we talk about, you know, repent of your sins, turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. 
But you see what Paul is doing here? He's not really repenting of sins here. He's repenting of his righteousness. He's saying, I used to think I was right with God on the basis of my good works because I was a Pharisee. I was a Jew, a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I thought that's what made me right with God. But I'm repenting of that and I'm finding my righteousness now in what Jesus did for me, my faith in Jesus. It's a different way of looking at salvation and conversion. You know, for many of us, and maybe it's like, you know, we, we were this way, rebels against God, sinners who recognize our need for a savior. But for him, he's recognizing that I was trusting in the wrong thing. I was trusting in my own righteousness. I need to stop trusting in my own good works and I need to trust in Jesus. One of the commentators I read, Moises Silva, he put it this way. He said, faith is the act of counting as loss all those things that may be conceived as grounds for self-confidence before God. It's the act of counting as loss all those things that may be conceived as grounds for self-confidence before God. It's recognizing that, you know, I used to think that I could stand before God and say, I'm a good person. I try to be good in all I do. So I think God then therefore should accept me and favor me. And, and he's saying, no, <laughs> faith is recognizing that's no longer the grounds for my self-confidence. My confidence is in Jesus and what he did for me. So Paul's argument is this. Reject anyone who adds to justification by faith in Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Throw away your spiritual resume. Do not trust in anything in yourself, in your pedigree, in your works, but receive the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. If this is new to you this morning, please, I encourage you. It's not about what you've done or haven't done. It is about trusting in Jesus, putting your faith in him, that he lived the perfect life you couldn't live, and then he died sacrificial death on the cross in your place. Trust in him. Now, you probably thought I was done there, but I want to say a couple other things. It's ironic because, of course, this whole section begins with Paul saying, finally, brothers, and then he goes on for two more chapters. But, you know, those of you who maybe uh, wouldn't call yourself religious and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and this seems new, this whole idea of righteousness, it's, yes, it's a Christian theological term, but you may want to think of it in, in more just everyday terms as well. Just how much, even those who are not believers, they long for righteousness, it's a sense of, of, of knowing that they are right. They have met some standard. They measure up. That they know they have worth and value. They're, even though righteousness is a theological term, it still is at the heart of what so many of us in this world are longing for. And the whole idea of, of a resume is a great metaphor for that. That when you apply for a job, you put together your resume. And what's your resume? It's all the reasons why someone should hire you. You want to highlight all your education and what you've worked at before and all your skills and everything, and you present it to someone in the hopes that they will what? Hire you, accept you, welcome you into the company. And you think of that idea and that metaphor and how much of our lives is about resumes and going through life, presenting resumes to people and, and hoping that we'll be loved and accepted and welcomed and hired and get in. That when you are trying to convince someone to date you, right, or marry you, it's like presenting your resume. Here's all my qualifications. Here's my earning potential. Or here's my looks. And here's all whatever it is. It says, this is why I'm a good catch and a good candidate for dating or for marriage. 
or friends even, you know, and you want to present to them, so to speak, your resume of why it is that they should be your friend. We go through this life in so many ways presenting ourselves in such a way, trying to measure up, trying to reach a point where we feel worth, we feel value, we feel right, we feel enough. There's a book, David Zoll wrote a book called Seculosity, which I had reviewed in the Pulse a few years ago. Where he, tried to, he tried to argue around these, along these lines. He said, we want to feel good about ourselves. And so we edit our personalities to maximize the approval of others. Or we exaggerate hardships to make ourselves seem more heroic or others more villainous. The theological and psychological term for the energy we expend for the sake of feeling righteous is self-justification. And it cannot be overstated as a motivation in human affairs. It's an exhausting way to live. To go through life trying to feel like you are enough, trying to feel like you measure up, basing your self-worth on the matter of whether people hire you or not, whether people want to date you or not, whether people want to be your friends or not. It's an exhausting way to live. It's a way to ensure lots of anxiety, lots of depression. As you go through life, just looking for righteousness in, looking for rightness and looking to others to see if you measure up, to see if you're good enough. Jesus offers a better way. The gospel offers a better way that in Christ, the verdict is in. Amen? The verdict is in. You're loved. You're worth so much that he gave his son to die for you. That your self-worth is not a matter of your performance and what you have done or haven't done. It doesn't matter what your spiritual resume is or any other resume. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have or don't have, whether someone loves you or not, whether you have a family or not. God loves you so much that he gave his son to die for you, to make a way for you to be right with him. You're loved. You're worth that much. And so you don't need to go out with your resume in hand trying to convince the world to love you, to hire you, to invite you in because you're already in. You're already loved. Let me pray, and then the worship team's going to lead us in responsive worship. Lord, I do pray for every man and woman sitting out here today that you would fill their hearts with your peace, the peace that comes from being right with you, from no longer having to strive and fight to be loved, to be worthy to measure up, to be enough. We thank you that in you we are loved. We are enough. Not because of anything we have done or haven't done, but because of Jesus. And so we lay down our resumes before you. And we receive by faith salvation, justification, your love. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.